I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, and welcome to the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast. Featuring at least one lost sci-fi short story from the 1940s, 50s, and 60s in every episode. I'm your host, Scott Miller, lover of science fiction and audiobook narrator. Did you know that you can get five lost sci-fi audiobooks for free? We'll give you all the details later. The author of today's short sci-fi story had a very interesting life. Born on August 11, 1928, in Des Moines, Iowa, after graduating high school, he went to Rutgers University, spent two years in the Navy, then on to the University of Pennsylvania to become a doctor. He helped pay for his medical degree by writing science fiction for magazines. In a 1952 issue of Other Worlds magazine, he said he started reading science fiction while he was at Rutgers, and was reading sci-fi like a man possessed, saying he ended up being the most incurable type of science fiction addict, the kind that has to write it as well as read it. Well, he wrote more than 30 short stories and more than a dozen novels. If dating, getting married, college, medical school, the U.S. Navy, writing for science fiction magazines, and publishing his first novel weren't enough, All in the first five years of the 1950s, he also found the time to make four appearances on television as an actor, including one during the eight-year run of the Philco Television Playhouse. And if that wasn't enough, The Good Doctor had a column in Good Housekeeping magazine. In 1965, he wrote a nonfiction book titled Intern, under the pseudonym appropriately, Dr. X. His legal name, Alan Edward Norse. He's perhaps better known as Alan E. Norse. 
In the first episode of the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, we mentioned that Philip K. Dick's sci-fi novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep became the movie Blade Runner. But did you know that the movie got its name, not the content, that was Philip K. Dick's, the name and name only from the 1974 novel written by Alan E. Norse, The Blade Runner. Three minutes and seven seconds after the credits for Blade Runner start, you'll see these words on the screen. With thanks to Alan E. Norse for the use of the title Blade Runner. It really is three minutes and seven seconds. Yeah, I'm weird like that. Matt had to destroy the rocket because it was a symbol of evil that had brought economic disaster. But must he also destroy the future? From Imagination Stories of Science and Fantasy, in March 1954, the 54th of July, written by Alan E. Norse. It was well after dark when Matt Matthews got back down to the headquarters camp and saw the city stranger sitting there before the fire. He knew he was a city man after a simple glance at the shiny low-top shoes and the reminiscence of a crease in the dusty trousers. Matt tossed the gophers and the two small coyotes off his broad shoulders to old Moe Arhelger across the campfire, staring in suspicious silence from the stranger to Moe and back again. Who's he? he asked finally. He wants to go down to the ship, said Moe, tossing another stick into the fire. He was a thin, wiry old man, with a white rim of beard scraggling over his lean jaw. A short-bit pipe was clenched between a set of very bad teeth. On his head was a torn, filthy old felt hat, but his clear blue eyes held the silent confidence of authority. The old man puffed quietly as he glanced up at the young giant who had just arrived. His name's Levy, he says. Flew over from El Paso this morning in a copter just to see me. Even knew my name. Everybody in New Mexico knows your name, Matthews growled. The old man nodded, his eyes bright. Mr. Levy wants to go down to the ship tonight. Matt stared at the stranger's half-day stubble. Then he burst out laughing. That's what we all want to do, buddy. Just go down to the ship, that's all. Only trouble is the bulldog isn't ready to lay out the welcome mat for us just yet. He glanced over at Mo. Did the doc say anything about Jack Abel? Jack's dead. Three slugs in the head. Matt's face darkened. He looked up at Levy. Jack wanted to go down to the ship, too. Tried to go down quiet-like. He set about skinning the first coyote, tossing the rest of the game to the group of silent men sitting around the fire near Mo. You're wasting your time, stranger. Stick around a while. Be patient like us. The bulldog can't hold out forever. Levy ran a hand through his dark hair, watching Matthews with sharp brown eyes. I wasn't figuring on going down quiet-like, he said. Matt looked up as though seeing the man for the first time, his eyes dark with suspicion. Then how do you plan to go? His hand moved to the gun at his side, and he began massaging the stock with his huge paw. Levy glanced at the gun without fear. Under a truce flag, he said. Matthew spat. Old man Gorham has command of four hundred men down at the ship. 
They'll shoot anybody that comes close on sight. He looked up at Moe, caught the old man's blue eyes sharply. I don't like this guy, Moe. I think we'd better take care of him. Moe shook his head. Take it easy, Matt. The man thinks maybe he can get this siege broken. Thinks Gorham may surrender if he knows what's happened. In Washington, all over the country. Levy nodded, bobbing his head eagerly. I knew Gorham before the crash. He's an old guard soldier. He'll honor a truce flag. His voice was crisp in the still night air. You want to get your hands on that ship. That's all you want. The whole crowd of you out here. Nothing else. So why risk a fight? Risk getting killed if I can get Gorham to surrender to you. Matt grinned unpleasantly. Why do you think they call him the bulldog? He'll never give up until we starve him out. We've got the time and the men and the food. They can't last much longer. Levy frowned in annoyance. I say you may not need to wait. Matthews climbed to his feet and walked slowly over to the edge of the rocks where the camp was situated. It was on the edge of the desert, and down below, sand and sage stretched for miles in the pale moonlight. On either side, he could see the flicker of the other campfires, forming a huge circle many miles in diameter. As he stood watching, his ear unconsciously picked up the rustle of silent footsteps on the trail leading to the nearest campfire away, the guard line which closed the circle tight. But he was not interested in the guard lines tonight. They were well guarded. No one could get through them. There were half a dozen dead soldiers lying out in the desert to attest to that. Soldiers who had tried to break through to the main highway during the past three weeks. What held Matt's interest right now was the huge cyclone fence enclosure in the center of the circle of fires. Inside the fence, he could see the low, flat buildings of the rocket development project. And in the moonlight, he could make out the lines of the ship itself, standing tall and lifeless in the darkness. He watched it for a moment, and his fists clenched. He whirled back to the fire, lifting the city stranger up by the collar, dragging his face up close to his. Why do you want to go down there? He snarled. Levy's face was purple, and he gasped for breath. Because there's no point in letting 400 innocent men be slaughtered when you can have the ship without firing a gun. That's why. My, but we're noble, Matt snapped. What do you care how many are killed? Who sent you here in the first place? Where did you get a copter to fly over here in? Levy shook himself free, glaring up at the giant standing over him. I stole a copter, if you have to know, and nobody sent me. How did you know we were here? Don't be a fool. The whole country knows you're here. Look, all I want is a chance to talk to Gorham under a truce flag for 15 minutes. If I don't succeed, you don't lose a thing. What harm can it do? Mo Arhelger spat into the fire. Can't do no harm, and it might just break this open for us, once and for all. Then we could go back home. But if he's a spy, he could have word from reinforcements. Maybe the army's planning a march. Levy snorted. The army isn't planning anything. The army is starving to death. The nearest contingent is in San Diego, and they've got their hands full just scouring the countryside for food. They've got no fuel to come here with, even if they felt like it. Matt scowled. He could still be a spy. 
Mo Arhelger nodded slowly, his eyes narrowing at the city man. Then he looked up at Matt. I know. That's why I want him to go down to the ship, with you along with him. The trip down the mountainside was slow. It was almost a half an hour before they reached the encampment at the bottom, on a gravel road that led straight out to the rocket site. The road was piled high with rocks, and four men with old felt hats and plaid shirts sat in jeeps, watching the road for a stir of life. Matt and Levy commandeered a jeep, bounced down a gully to bypass the roadblock, and started along the road toward the fenced enclosure. A spotlight picked them up almost immediately, and Levy hoisted a white shirt up on a pole, waving it to catch the light. Then slowly they drove ahead, until two more spotlights flashed on from the ship, scanning the sage on either side of them, flickering in their faces as they made their way along. Levy sat tight-lipped, peering ahead into the darkness. Matthews drove silently. He had never been this close to rocket number five before, but rockets were an old story to him. He had worked on number three and number four during his two years in the labor force. He knew quite enough about rockets. More lights went on as they approached the fence. Inside, off to the left and right, were buildings, the storerooms and offices of the project. And in the center, standing tall, with her lower third and shrouded in scaffolding and canvas, stood the ship, rocket number five. The last attempt, the straw that broke the camel's back, four great ships before it, crashing into heaps of rubble, dragging the earth down with them. And here, the fifth, as yet unborn, never to be launched. Matthews made a bitter sound in his throat. When he thought of the horrible fifty-four days just passed, he knew that his hate for this rocket ship and everything it stood for was right. Moe was right in his fanatical burning hatred of the old world, which had struggled blindly to launch its ships and starved itself to do so. But Moe wanted everything, the ships, the men, the government, everything. Matthews only wanted the ship. He smiled grimly to himself. The garrison could not hold out much longer. They had no food, and the ring of gorillas surrounding the ship like a tight net would see that they got no food. It had been a long wait, but soon they would struggle out, begging for food and water, leaving the ship standing alone, to be wrecked and ripped and torn into a thousand bitter pieces. A soldier suddenly appeared in a spotlight inside the huge fence gate, rifle half-raised in his hands. He let out a shout and brought the rifle up to his shoulder. Halt! The jeep's tire screeched. Then Levy raised the flag again and waved it. Truce, he called out. We're unarmed. What do you want? We want to talk to the bulldog. There was a long pause as a conference was held back in the shadows. Someone in the darkness ran out to join the gate guard. Then there was a grating sound as the lock on the gate snapped open. The gate swung out as five more soldiers encircled it from within, rifles cocked and ready. Leave the jeep outside. Come in with your hands raised. Slowly, Matt and Levy climbed out and walked forward. The soldiers looked weary, their clothes filthy, their eyes bright with hate. They watched the men as they walked in, 
and then closed around them, herding them across to a long, low building. Lights went on, and Mac could see the dim interior of a disused day room, the walls piled high with supply cartons. You wait, said one of the soldiers. I'll see if the colonel wants to see you. He watched them carefully until the gate clanged shut. Then he nodded to another guard and disappeared into the darkness. They did not wait long. The door burst open and a short, squat, gray-haired man strode into the room. Dressed in a T-shirt and O.D. pants, he was not an imposing figure, but there was no mistaking the heavy shock of gray hair, the solid, sour set of the mouth, the wide-set eyes, the bulldog of white sands, they had called him, the man in charge of administration of three rocket projects, the man who had sworn that space would never defeat him. He glared at Matthews for a moment, and then his glance shifted to Levy, and his eyes widened. Well, he said sourly, I hardly expected to see you joining up with these pigs. Levy's eyes flickered in a tired smile. So you remember me, he said. I never forget a face. The colonel stared at him with a stony expression for a moment. White Sands, April of 1993, two and a half years ago, almost. Just after the third ship blew up. Name is, um, Levy. Levy nodded. That's right. The colonel's eyes hardened. You were with a crowd that was trying to talk the government into junking the rocket projects, right? That's right. We predicted the impending crash even then. Hogwash, said the colonel. A lot of statistical blather. Unfortunately, statistics is a scientific technique, and our predictions were not blather. We predicted the crash almost to the day. We said the 30th of July, 1995. We had no way of predicting the Iranian oil decision, which happened last April. That precipitated the crisis by a month, so it came on the 1st of July instead of the 30th. But socio-mathematics were far beyond the blather stage then. We hope we can still salvage something from the country now. The old soldier blinked at him. What do you want, Levy? I've come to ask you to surrender the ship and march your men out of here. Colonel Gorham snorted. My orders were to guard and protect this rocket, down to the last man if necessary. On the 6th of July, a week after the crash, I had orders direct from the president to hold this ship at any cost. He warned me then that there'd be mobs, maybe even an attempt to storm the enclosure. He scowled angrily. They'll never get this ship as long as I'm alive. And have you heard from the president since the 6th? Levy's voice was smooth. I have not. Perhaps that's because the president was hanged on the White House lawn the day after he called you. Quite a mob was there. The food pinch was just beginning to be felt, and that was 47 days ago. He glanced up at the colonel's white face. Oh, I'm not lying to you. It happened. Have you had any communications recently? How could I? They cut the telephone cables, and we can't get anything but hysterical nonsense from our radio sets. Has it occurred to you that many things may have happened in the course of this last month? Levy's voice was sharp in the still room. I'll hold this ship until things get straightened out, the colonel snapped. Colonel, things aren't going to straighten out. 
This isn't just a little depression we're in now. It isn't a small business recession that will just up and stabilize soon. This is an economic crash that has thrown the world back a thousand years. We may never recover from the crash that came on the 1st of July. The government is gone, Colonel. There isn't any government. The army is dissolved into the hills, hunting for food. The only money with any value is being paid out by the hospitals for blood to restock their banks. And without money, there isn't any food. The people in the cities are starving, standing in the streets starving, because food isn't coming in. Communications are out. There isn't any commercial traffic. I have a stockpile of emergency rations a mile high, and I have 400 men who aren't running around in the hills, the colonel snarled. I have a job to do, and I'm doing it. But you're guarding an empty shell. Look, the people don't know all the reasons for the collapse. They don't know the whole picture, but they know one thing. They know they've been taxed beyond endurance. Their gasoline has been requisitioned. Their boys taken for military and labor service. Their money devaluated again and again so that the government could get a rocket off the earth before the Asians did. And they know that now the whole world has fallen in a heap and they're starving to death. And they know that this rocket was being worked on when the crash came. They want it, Colonel. They are going to get it, too. They need a scapegoat for these 54 days. And this rocket is it. And there won't be any recovery as long as that ship stands. He stared at the Colonel and then made a hopeless gesture. You don't believe me, do you? You think that it's just a matter of time until things stabilize and everything will be back to normal don't you? Well, it won't, Colonel. Do you know what they are calling the date out there? The 54th of July. 54 days since the crash, and things are getting worse every day. Even time has stood still. They've forgotten to use the calendar. There'll never be a world like you knew before, Colonel. But the agony and suffering and chaos must be paid for, somehow. And the rocket is the price. Until the whole world knows that the rocket is utterly destroyed, there will be no faith in government or people or anything else. Levy glanced nervously at Matthews, towering against the wall, watching the discussion sourly. Then he looked back at the colonel and leaned forward. Let them take the ship. There are things here far more precious than any single rocket ship could ever be. You know what I mean. If you resist, they'll get the ship and everything else. The colonel's eyes moved to Matthew's heavy face and then back to Levy. Suddenly, his face looked very tired. That's a chance I'll have to take, he said wearily. You're wasting your time, Levy. Later, around the campfire, Matt stared gloomily at old Mo Arhelger. I tell you, I don't like it, he said. I just don't like it. The old man cocked sharp eyes across the fire. I don't see that any harm was done. We gave the bulldog his last chance. He didn't care to take it. That suits me fine. Now he can watch out. Matt shook his head sharply. That isn't what I mean. I didn't like the looks of the place. It looked too much like a going concern. Gorham was too damn confident. Did you ever see a garrison commander who wasn't? But Gorham is no fool. 
He knows we've got this encampment sewed up. He knows he can't get out, and neither can his men. He knows there won't be any supplies coming in for him. Matt rubbed his chin thoughtfully. And the look of the place, the look of the ship. I couldn't see much, of course, but it didn't look right. The old man's eyes narrowed. What do you mean by that? Matt's forehead creased into a worried frown. I don't know. I think they're trying to complete the rocket for a flight. But that's crazy, Moe exploded. They don't have the supplies. They don't have the calculator power. They haven't got power for anything. We've seen to that. Gasoline generators for their spotlights. Nothing else. I know, I know. It doesn't make sense. Matt shot a glance at Levy, crouched at a nearby fire, and he lowered his voice. And there was something Levy said about something more valuable than the ship itself. Look, Mo, we don't know how far the ship had gone before the crash. Maybe all the calculations were completed. Mo stared at the fire for a long moment. A tall, lanky man stumbled up the trail by flashlight, sending down a shower of pebbles. He stopped before the fire. All quiet, Mo. They closed up shop after the delegation left. Mo nodded to the man. Tell Mike to alert his men, Tommy. Get everybody looking alive. What's up? Something about to break? The old man scowled. I don't know, but I want everyone awake. Got it? The guard nodded and vanished down the trail again. Moe turned to Matthews, a queer look in his eyes. What do you think, Matt? I think our time is running out, said Matthews. Maybe you worry too much. Maybe. Moe's eyes blazed. They can't try to launch it, he snarled. It's got to be smashed. Smashed so hard they'll never dare try to make another one. His hand clenched on his rifle until the knuckles were white. Matt leaned forward eagerly. Let me go down there, Mo. We've got dynamite. I could find a way to climb the fence, maybe, and start the works off. Once something went bang from the inside and broke their control of the place, we could mop them up. Moe's hand relaxed. You'd never make it alive. Somebody's got to try. There isn't much time. I'm sure of it. All right. Try it. But before you go, you've got a visitor. I think you'd better talk to her. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The girl was waiting in his tent, sitting alone in the darkness. 
She looked up into the flashlight beam, and there were wet streaks of dust on her cheeks. Matt, is that you? She stumbled to her feet. Oh, Matt. Mary. The big man stared at his wife, his eyes wide. Mary, what are you doing here? How did you get here? Why did you come? He took her in his arms, held her tight as she pressed her face against his chest, sobbing. Then suddenly he straightened up, held her out at arm's length, staring into her large brown eyes. Mary, the farm. She closed her eyes, tears streaming down her cheeks, and shook her head miserably. Gone. City people from San Diego. They came one night. They took it. A numbness ran down his spine as he stared at her. But Dad and Johnny, they never had a chance. She wiped her eyes with her sleeve, her voice faltering. It was a crowd of men, maybe ten of them, came across the land about eight o'clock one night. They shot your dad when he walked out on the porch, shot him through the head. Then they came in the house and beat Johnny to death. Oh, Matt, it was horrible. They shot the cow and cooked her over an open fire. You should have seen them. They were starving. They were like wild men, calling us land grabbers and food hoarders. I sneaked out the back way when they weren't looking and ran down the road to Escondido and found Harry Davis. He and a bunch of the boys had stolen some gas and were planning to drive over the mountains to join you here. They sent word around to the other farmers, and then they brought me along. Matt stood numbly, staring at the girl's face. Mary, you shouldn't have come here. You should have gone to the folks in town. They would have helped you, taken care of you. The girl whirled on him, her eyes pleading. Oh, Matt, come away from here. Come out of this horrible fight and come home. What does it matter if there's a rocket out here? We can't eat rockets. We need food. The city folks are coming out in hordes. There was a man said the water supply wasn't going to last to the north, that the cars were lined up three deep from the coast clear out to Salt Lake, bumper to bumper, a week ago. They stole gasoline from the refineries before they blew them up. They're all heading east and north. Oh, Matt, take me home. He stood there in the dim light of the flashlight and then knelt down beside her, holding her against him. I can't, Mary. Not yet, he said softly. The world we knew before was crazy. This rocket was crazy. This being afraid of war and fighting to outdo the rest of the world was crazy. And somehow, she stared at him. But everybody knew that if we didn't get there first, the others would. And there would have been a horrible war. The end of everything. Everyone was so busy being afraid of the war that they couldn't see what was happening to the world around them. They didn't see that something worse than a war could happen. Until it was too late. They figured the oil would last another hundred years, and it only lasted twenty. They thought they could go on like this forever. He stared blankly out at the darkness, his eyes hollow. It was that rocket that did it. That's why we have to destroy it. Matt, if we don't go now, 
We won't have any home left to go to. Those people don't know how to farm. They'll kill all the animals and strip the trees and fields and burn all the buildings. He shook his head, hardly able to put into words the bitterness in his heart. It won't do any good to go back without destroying the rocket. It's the last remnant of the old world, standing out there. The world that led us to this. It's poisonous. It's evil. There'll never be recovery unless the ship is wiped out. He looked down into her frightened eyes, rubbed her shoulders gently. Don't be afraid. It won't be long. I'm going out there tonight. I'm going to blow that rocket into a million pieces. She clung to him like a child, shaking her head helplessly. You will be killed. I know you will be killed. Please, Matt. Oh, if anything happens to you, I I won't know what to do. I can't let you go. I've got to, Mary. Her voice was very small. And when it's over, we'll manage somehow. I don't know how. It doesn't really matter now. I don't know what kind of a world we'll have when it's all over. But I know that I'm going out to get that ship, if it's the only thing I ever do that's right. He went out alone. He tried to force out of his mind the account Mary had brought of the butchery back home, concentrating on one thing and one thing only. The ship had to be destroyed. Standing out there in the desert, it was the symbol of all that was wrong with a world that had somehow abruptly been left behind. Matt saw it all in black and white, bitterly, a cause-and-effect relationship. He could neither rationalize it or deny it, but somehow, he felt, by destroying the ship, he could wipe out a past too horrible to even think about. He knew he had to do it. Matthews moved quietly through the blackness. The sandy soil was caked and hard under his feet, and the moon had just gone under the horizon to the west. Far ahead, he could see the feeble guard lights of the enclosure, and he stopped panting, staring at the tiny figures pacing back and forth. He had grown used to moving cautiously through the desert land without making a sound. Now he concentrated on silence for his very life, and the only sound in his ears was the jogging of the dynamite pack on his shoulders. He circled slowly, making for the section of the fencing closest to the ship, he knew there would be few lights, since precious gasoline had to run generators to provide any at all. He had examined the gates as they had opened earlier in the evening, and felt certain there was no brake circuit alarm on the fence. Power, again, only for the barest, most critical essentials. And with four hundred men available, eyesight was the best way to guard the fence. The heavy metal wire appeared suddenly in the gloom, and he fell flat on his face in a little gully as the tread of a guard's feet sounded from a distance. A small flashlight flicked on and off as the footsteps approached. Matt hugged the ground, holding his breath as the soldier moved silently by. Then he was up against the fence, dragging the climbers from his pockets, strapping them onto his boots. Cutting the heavy fencing wire was out of the question. The sound would ring out in the stillness like a pistol shot. 
but the barbed wire at the top could be cut with only a small sound. He struggled up the bare fence, a few inches at a time. It seemed like hours. He knew the guard's timing, down to the second, and he worked himself up, panting. It was the dog watch. The men would not be too alert, even men fighting for their lives. He clung to the fence with one hand and snapped the four barbed strands with a hand tool, felt them curl away with a ping. He dragged his body up and caught his knee on the top of the fence. In an instant, he had dropped to the ground inside the enclosure. On his feet, he crouched and ran for the tall, dark ship. The intervening buildings provided him cover. Down one of the concrete streets, a dozen men were huddled around a small fire near the gate, talking and laughing. Matt slipped across the street and saw the ship's mammoth scaffolding rise up in the darkness. It was a beautiful ship, tall and silvery, and shrouded like a statue waiting to be unveiled. He glanced around the grounds, and his eyes widened. Great tanks of fuel stood nearby. Recently opened cartons of supplies were everywhere in evidence. A huge pile of oxygen cylinders formed a heavy pyramid. Matthews walked over to one of the open crates, peered into it. Heavy material, plastic, metal. Spacesuits. He opened the pack on his back, drew out the bundles of dynamite carefully, separated them from the coil of wire to the small detonator. Somewhere in the distance he heard talking, and he hurried his movements. Finally, the deadly bundles were free. As he stooped to duck under the first tier of the scaffolding, a bright light flashed on above him, and an alarm bell started clanging. He cursed and ran like a cat under the scaffolding, up to the great silvery fin of the ship. Of course, he should have thought that if there was no circuit alarm on the fence, there surely would be one around the ship. Far away, a roar of voices rose up, and shouts, the pummel of running feet. Frantically, he thrust a dynamite charge under one of the fins of the ship, then ran to a second and laid another charge. A rifle cracked somewhere, and another, and he darted into the piles of boxes, unreeling the detonator wire as he ran. There were hoarse shouts all about him now. He ducked into a huge empty crate, not fifty feet from the charges. Huddling down in it for protection, he connected wires to the battery and slammed down the plunger. The shockwave hit him before the sound did picking up the crate like a pillbox hurling Matthew's head over heels. The roar burst in his ears, striking him like a palpable wall, and a shout of despair went up among the soldiers. Matt stood up, then staring up at the great metal hulk. There was a heavy rushing sound, and the ship faltered, shaking like a giant aspen leaf, and slowly began to tip. It struck the ground with a deafening crash, a grating of torn metal and the screech of broken, twisted planks. Something exploded into a pillar of fire, and then, in the distance, Matthew saw flashes of fire from the desert, heard rifles cracking. A soldier, running to the fence, saw him and raised his rifle, wild eyes reflecting the fire. Matthews dove for him, threw him back with a grunt as the rifle cracked into the air. And then the compound was wild with the sound of running, shouting men. 
Matthews ran for a huge truck standing near the fallen ship. He threw himself up into the cab, gunning the motor to a roar. Then the gears grated and the truck started forward, straight for the crowd of soldiers lining up at the fence. Mac gripped the steering wheel, leaning as low as possible, throwing the huge truck at the fence with all its power. The impact nearly threw him through the windshield. He heard a grating as the wire bunged out and the fence post snapped. Shifting into compound low, he drove the truck through the fence like a bulldozer. And then, all around him, the men from outside were pouring through the break, screaming in triumph, rifles cracking. A horde of them came and the soldiers fell back, bewildered, shooting wildly, running in circles of panic as the angry mob poured through. And then Matt felt the first wave of shock pass through him. Wearily, he dropped his head against the dashboard, gasping for breath. He knew that the ship was taken. He did not know how long he was unconscious. Fires were burning in a dozen buildings around him, and he could hear the screams and shouts of the raiders. Dark figures rushed wildly by, silhouetted against the orange flames. Matt crawled down from the truck as four men ran by with crowbars, shouting at the top of their lungs. Matt stared at the crowd surrounding the fallen ship, shouting, raising torches high in the dark night. He watched for a long moment, but something flickered in his mind. It was a picture of mad, frantic destruction on all sides of him, but something was whispering softly in his ears. Levy's words. Levy's intense face. There is something far more precious than any one rocket ship here. Staring at the screaming mob, Matthew suddenly knew what Levy had meant. A wrecking crew was at work on the ship, savagely venting their pent-up rage and fear and frustration on the inanimate metal, wrenching hull plates off with violent screeches, ripping and slicing stanchions with blowtorches hissing. A dozen people were streaming in and out of the airlock, dragging couches, springs, chunks of instrument panel, hordes of supplies, oxygen tanks. The crowd was exultant, the firelight shining on a thousand wild faces, maddened by the lust of destruction. But Matthew stared, and the feeling of sickness and revulsion grew hard in the pit of his stomach. He turned and started over toward the buildings. The deed was done, but horror was still at large in the world. He didn't know what the future held. And yet, somehow now, he didn't want to join the insane fury at work ripping the rocket to shreds. Levy's words nagged at his mind, and he made his way between the burning buildings, feeling the desert breeze turned hot in his face, until he saw the concrete and stone administration building up ahead. We hope maybe we can still salvage something. As Matt walked through the doorway of the headquarters office, he stopped short, stiffening to the sound of a forty-five booming in the room before him. There was Moe, his back half to the door, holding the still-smoking automatic in his hand. And Matt's eyes went from Moe to a long row of filing cabinets against the far wall. Beside a partially open drawer, a figure slumped against the side of the cabinet, 
hands clutching at a sheaf of papers inside the drawer. It was the bulldog, the colonel himself. But even as Matt stared wide-eyed, the colonel let out a rasping sigh and fell to the floor. He lay still beside another body, that of Levy. Mo. Mo turned as Matt strode into the room. There was an angry look on the old man's face. A spy, that's what he was. You were right, Matt. I caught him in here with the bulldog. They were talking and going through the files together. Looked like they were planning on skipping out. Fat chance. Mo laughed mirthlessly. Whatever they were looking for, they won't use now. And nobody else will. Got a match, Matt? I'm going to burn this place to the ground. Matt stared from the dead bodies to Mo and over to the cabinet with the drawer still half open. He saw the sheaf of papers the bulldog had been holding just before he died. He remembered again what Levy had said. There is something far more precious than any one rocket ship here. Mo, you're missing out on the fun at the ship. Matt said suddenly, intensely. I'll get out there, but first I got to... Let me do it, Mo. Might enjoy seeing them two burn together. After all, it isn't much of a favor to ask. Mo looked at him curiously for a moment, then shrugged. Why not? If it wasn't for you, we wouldn't be in here at all tonight. Go ahead. I'll meet you at the ship. Make a nice big fire. And then Mo was gone, and Matt stood alone in the room. He stood and stared down at the dead bodies, Levy's face showing fear and frustration, just as it must have when Mo's bullet found his heart. The colonel slumped partially across Levy's body, the bulldog face in a tight, angry knot, even in death. The colonel had been a brave man, a tough one. Matt wished suddenly that he had not had to die. He crossed hurriedly to the file and pulled the sheaf of papers from the drawer. A sheaf of blue papers. Blue papers with white lines. Blueprints. That was what Levy had meant. The calculations had been completed. The blueprints made. The ship had been almost completed, and now it was destroyed. But the blueprints remained. Here were the hopes and dreams of centuries. Here were the plans, the specifications, the construction plans. Fifty years of the Earth's resources, and now the project they had planned and specified was being destroyed in a single night, the night of the 54th of July. He stared at the prince, his whole body trembling. He hated the rocket. He hated everything it had ever stood for in the old world before the crash. It had stripped him of his home, robbed him of his future. It had robbed the whole world of its heritage, and he hated it. And yet, to go to the planets had always been man's great dream. The ship could be destroyed without utterly destroying the dream. Because someday, somehow, men could take these precious papers, sometime when the world was sane again, and build another ship. His mind rushed back to his boyhood days, and he remembered sharply the lure of the open spaces he had felt then. Someday, he had dreamed, 
he would build a rocket to the moon and go out there to explore and discover. It hadn't mattered what he would explore, what he would discover. All that had mattered was the urge to go, an urge he had shared with thousands of men. He hadn't known then that the goal would crush the world into a smoking ruin far worse than any war, a crash that brought slow death by starvation, a crash that wrenched the livelihood from the mouths of millions, a crash that demoralized them and drove them back to the caves to work and fight like savages for a few morsels of bread. He hadn't known that, because it wasn't really necessary that it happen. Men could, someday, find a way to go out without bankrupting the world to do it. He searched frantically, found a huge pasteboard box. He had seen others moving through the torchlight with boxes filled full of loot. He began loading the blueprints into it, breathlessly, glancing over his shoulder for fear someone might come in. He reached into his pocket, drew out his revolver, and placed it on the cabinet beside him as he worked. Let them burn the buildings and tear up the ship. But they must not destroy these papers. Let the rocket project be dead, utterly dead, torn to shreds by the people of this strange twilight world. But the dream need not die. He heard a sound behind him, and he whirled, staring up into Mo Arhelder's bearded face. The old man stood there, a strange light in his wild eyes, staring first at Matt, then at the blue papers in the box. I see now why you wanted to be alone. He looked up at Matt, a long, slow, savage look. Dump it, Matt he said, motioning to the box. Matthew's arm tightened around the carton. I want these, he said softly. You've got your rocket, Mo. They'll never build another one. I said dump it. There was a harsh edge to the old man's voice. We're cleaning the place out. Everything. There'll never be another one. Never, as long as the world lives. But what do you care about these? Matt cried. You'll be dead long before they ever try rockets again. They're evil, the old man snarled. Everything about them is evil. They've dragged us down into the dirt. Down so far, we'll never be able to crawl up again. His rifle leveled slowly. Throw those prints on the floor, Matt. Touch a match to them right here, or I'll burn them for you. Slowly, Matt turned, lifted up the box. It was heavy. His eyes flicked to the old man, and he rested the box gently on the bench for a moment. And then he threw it in the old man's face and snatched up the revolver from the bench. He fired four times, and the old man doubled over and pitched forward on his face, groaning. Matt kicked the rifle across the room, throwing the blueprints back into the box. Panting, he shot out the light and fled across the compound toward the open gate. Somewhere out there, Mary would be waiting, and maybe Levy's group was still alive somewhere. Maybe they still knew a way toward recovery now that the rocket was destroyed. The fifty-four days of chaos might be over now. They would know what to do with the precious box. 
It would be in safe hands until men were ready to build again. Matt ran through the gate and into the shadows outside the compound. In the flickering light of the flames behind him, he could make out a figure approaching. Matt! Oh, Matt, you're safe! It was Mary, and he felt a gladness sweep through him. She grabbed his arms, her eyes tear-filled with relief. She glanced down at the box he held closely against him. Matt, what's that? He motioned her toward the deeper shadows and a jeep he saw standing unguarded. His voice was grim as he answered her. It's for the future, Mary. The future. Moments later, they drove away into the night. The 54th of July, written by Alan E. Norse. Norse was married for decades to the girl he was dating in college. He died eight days after their 40th anniversary in 1992. Every lost sci-fi short story we narrate that is under an hour is available on our website for only 97 cents every day. Only 97 cents. LostSciFi.com Go to LostSciFi.com and get bundles of five audiobooks for only $2.97 every day. Ten for $4.97 or Lost Sci-Fi Books 1 through 20, which is more than 10 hours long, is now at a new lower price, only $7.97. You will find these stories on many other websites, but you will never find a lower price. Go to LostSciFi.com and get your sci-fi fix for less. Would you help us get the word out about the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast? We'd really appreciate it. There are two ways you can help us and help yourself at the same time. Please share the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast on social media, any social media. And when you do, please send us a screenshot of your post to scott at lostsci-fi.com and we will happily send you two free Lost Sci-Fi audiobooks. The second way you can help is to rate and review our podcast. If you'll send us a screenshot of your review, we'll be happy to send you two free Lost Sci-Fi audiobooks. Rate and review and share the Lost Sci-Fi podcast. What the heck? We'll send you any five-book bundle you want. Send an email to us at scott at lostsci-fi.com. We love narrating these Lost Sci-Fi short stories. We hope it shows. And we want to share the sci-fi goodness with as many people as possible. Thank you for listening, thank you for sharing, and thank you in advance for your comments and suggestions. Send us an email anytime, scott at lostsci-fi.com. We really appreciate you. We will continue to bring you Lost Sci-Fi short stories every week. Subscribe today and you'll never miss a new episode. Next week on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, an author who was hired by Hitchcock. Yes, legendary Hollywood director Alfred Hitchcock. An author who legally changed his name because he was told that a novel he wrote would sell more copies under a pen name. An author with an interesting past that would lead to connections to actors Glenn Ford, Sidney Poitier, and Vic Morrow. That's next week on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. 
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.